What do you think strategy-wise makes sense to focus on as an industry to get that mainstream adoption? I don't know. I'm going to take the easy out uh, and just say the magic of AI combined with XR is kind of what we need. We just got to find the right synergy between the two. The VR Report Podcast with David Gino. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is David Jean O from The VR Report, and I have my special guest, James Ashley. Hey, what's going on, James? Not much, David. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Thanks for being a guest. We met at the New York Augmented Reality Meetup. That was super cool, and I got to learn a lot from you. So I said, hey, we should have you on the pod, and it'll be fun. Sure. Um, you are an AR developer, but I'm sure you can do a much better job introducing yourself. Why don't you tell your audience what you're all about? Yeah, so uh, I've been doing software for about 20 years now. And about 13 years ago, I got into emerging technologies with a company called Razorfish. And before that, I've been doing a lot of, uh, you know, general enterprise software, and it was killing my soul. So I was really happy to get to a creative agency where they taught me a lot of new things and new ways of thinking. And I've sort of been building my career out of that ever since. That's fantastic. For those who don't know, Razorfish is kind of like an, uh, one of the original OGs in internet develop, uh, website development, but they were uh -huh. actually the first forerunners of really pushing the boundaries of what you can see through the browser, really amazing stuff. Uh, and then they have an emerging lab, uh, experiences lab. Can you tell more uh, about what that, what that group did and why it was so cool? Yeah, so inside the whole world of advertising agencies and marketing agencies, they were one of the digital agencies that came along in you know the 2000s and uh around 20 2008 or so i think they opened up an emerging experiences lab this was a time when a lot of companies were opening up what they would call emerging technology labs but razorfish being a creative agency likes to be different right and so they're guessing about the technology it's about the experience and um, they started off doing, I don't know if you remember this technology called the Surface Table from Microsoft. That's how they sort of um, got their start inside of Razorfish and started getting their funding by doing a project for AT&T. And from there, we sort of trained up our own skills and our own ways of thinking about emerging technology. And the goal was always to sort of envision the future using the current technology simply sometimes by sleight of hand, but usually by combining different tech together in unusual ways um, to try to show what could be done uh, in retail, especially was one of our bivouacs. Um, so I'll, I'll just go deeper. In that time when a lot of people were doing emerging technologies, a lot of people got into museum work because they thought this is really gonna stretch our experience or they would get into education. And uh, what killed them there is museums and schools do not have money. You know who does have money? Uh, auto manufacturers and retail stores. So we specialized in auto and retail and did a lot of auto shows. And it also really expanded what we could do because we had really great clients. Um, and our job was always to push their brand forward and try to show their brand in a futuristic light, which some brands really want to do, some brands don't. Cool. Uh, and the ones who did, we just had a great time with. That's fantastic. And so then you transitioned to Lab Light AR, which was focusing on science, uh, specifically around laboratory usage with augmented reality. Can you explain more of what you did there? Yeah. Lab Light AR is a startup out of Seattle. 
and their particular concern is with doing laboratory protocols. So you probably remember from college and high school, they would give you a lab book that tells you go through these processes in order to you know achieve these results. And it turns out that after college, that doesn't change. Everybody who works in the laboratory world still has to have protocols. They still have these huge binders of procedures that you need to go through. And they're really hard. Uh, even a one hour procedure, you can make mistakes in, right? And that sets you back an hour. But for really big things like uh, gene tech, you can have a three week process where if you blow one step, suddenly you've wasted three weeks of work and probably three to $5,000 of uh, laboratory equipment and you got to start over again. So the notion is that it's very expensive and there's a high fail rate. And so we're looking at how to use AR and um, machine learning in order to track what's happening on a laboratory table and then provide visual cues to help people guide people through the different laboratory processes, get them to the next step and always help them keep track of where they are in these very long processes. Um, and we thought that was a really great merger of AI and AR and a future possibility we're trying to build out. And then we're using the mobile phone for the AR capabilities of, of I guess this was instructional training use case for AR. Mm -hmm. uh, no, we were actually using headsets. So uh, I'm trying to remember, I think we're doing the Magic Leap and the HoloLens 2, especially. And That's so we would have these cameras looking down at the table and we try to recreate everything. It's all, you know, condense all these AI images into coordinates that would go over the headset and then try to recreate this really cool experience out of that. That's really cool. I think with education and training, AR really shines in those use cases. I don't know if you've heard of Lapster VR. Um, they basically bring your laboratory in a VR headset so you don't have to spend money on a huge facility. Uh, oh, yeah. I also advise for... Uh, Dynamoid that creates 10K, which is basically importing any biological or different types of medical data and then visualizing that in the microverse, uh, like going into sickle cells and, and understanding uh, you know, how that uh, world works uh, through education. But you know, in terms of uh, your current position, and I know it's in stealth uh, with Project Archer, uh, but you are focusing on retail commerce. Can, instead of talking about the company directly, can you uh, give your thoughts on augmented reality and e-commerce uh, specifically regarding retail? I'm going to sort of be squirrely and go around a little bit. Uh, a lot of what the company is about is envisioning a future. You can always take two bets, right? Either AAR is going to be a big failure or it's going to be a hit, and nobody seems to think it's just going to be something in between. So the bet in retail is, let's say it's going to be ubiquitous someday. Uh, maybe in three years, maybe in five years, and people will be walking to stores with glasses. We want to be on top of that, right? Because with new technologies, there's always a learning curve. So um, by exploring all of the experiences that you can have in the store ahead of time, and some of them are really obvious, right? Like uh, navigating through a store is probably something that would be helpful if you're going through a mall and there were just, um, you know, breadcrumbs that would lead you where you need to go next. That's a pretty handy feature to have. Um, and so we're exploring all those sorts of things and trying to see what works and what doesn't work. And our expectations are, there's always gonna be a lot of fails. People have ideas from the movies about how the world should work in AR. And our goal is to find out what does and doesn't work out of that and try to find better solutions. And then when AR finally hits big, we'll be, 
say two or three years ahead of the competition and actually simply thinking through all of these problems? Yeah, I think what was surprising to me was understanding how big of a business Amazon had with the try-on AR of trying on your furniture and putting it into yeah. your environment. And from my understanding, I think it's it's a several hundred million dollar business, but even at that size, Amazon is kind of like, hmm, that's, that's peanuts compared to some of our other uh, you know, like cloud, for example. And I see that that's an opportunity for a lot of companies because obviously there's a need and, and, and a want. I think it's pretty time intensive right now to actually have your uh, like couch that you're a couch manufacturer and to be able to have that as a try on through AR with your phone or through glasses, because you would have to import those models. You have to tag them and it's it's a very manual process, which I would think it, we can streamline that. Um, is that something do you think that, uh, without talking about your company, but you think that's really interesting or or what's your view of how the technology will work with AR and retail specifically? Yeah, those are, those are two great points. Um, let's break them up. First, Amazon. Amazon tried for a while to get out of, let's say they're in virtual space now, they want to get into the real world and they start opening up the stores. It was a cool experiment, but uh, as far as I know, they're silently closing down all of their brick and mortar stores, right? Uh, the experiment didn't totally work out. So they still recognize that people want some sort of physical experience in their shopping. And if they can't do brick and mortar, then obviously VR or AR is a second best. I think that's that's what they're really looking at hard now because um, they don't want to give up on that share of the market, right? Um, otherwise, they're just ceding it to um, your big box stores and they still want to dominate. So that's one thing. And then you point out this, uh, basically this sort of supply management problem or resource problem where, yeah, if you're going to go into VR and AR for retail, then you need really high fidelity 3D models of everything that you're putting out there. And that is a huge problem. Um, actually, before I started doing that laboratory work and before I started doing what I do, do now, I was working for a company that was looking at AR for the architecture and construction space where they've been doing 3D models with uh, Autodesk for a long time, but actually doing 3D fidelity models is a hard, hard problem. Um, a lot of the 3D scanning software comes out of the construction world, but the market there is also very, very strange where you've got some companies selling $50,000 scanning devices and other companies selling 10,000. And then there's a low end of people trying to make the Microsoft Connect for Windows work to do scanning too, right? So there are tons of scanning solutions and people are still trying to figure that out. People are trying to figure out uh, what the market is for that. There are several companies trying to come up with online AI solutions. And that's a really exciting world, but it's still trying to work itself out right now. And you're totally right. Whoever figures out that problem um, is going to have a lot of customers downstream because in order to have an active VR, AR market, you need all of that particular kind of 3D content. Totally. So, you know, without talking about your current stealth project, I, I can kind of fill in the blanks of what you're going for. That's super cool. So 
uh, yeah, AI plays a huge role in, in making sure these uh, models are accessible. So you have a background also in Microsoft heavily. You are a big evangelist for the HoloLens. You have a lot of experience with Kinect. For some of those who don't know, Kinect was one of the first 3D cameras that Microsoft had put out. It was uh, it worked in conjunction with your Xbox. I actually worked on Your Shape, one of the number one fitness games at the time, using the Kinect. So I, I know the technology really well. However, there were some limitations. Um, why do you think Connect wasn't invested in? So they, they did release the Connect for Windows in 2017, I think. Um, that that really smaller device that comes out of HoloLens technology too. Um, so what I think happened is the first Connect was hugely successful. I think it was more successful than Microsoft even expected it to be. Um, and when they were working on the Connect 2, the device became a peripheral for the Xbox, right? And, so there's organizational things there. And so it was really important that it get bundled with Xbox. The reason it's important that it gets bundled is you have to have games for a peripheral like that. That's that unusual, right? So if you don't have AAA titles, nobody's going to buy the device at that point. Uh, so, but no AAA company is going to invest that much money in development resources on a peripheral unless they get some sort of guarantee that everybody's going to have one. So that, yeah, that was the original, but... that was the game plan. It was a great game plan. It was right. bigger than that, right? Because then they would have this uh, wonderful computer slash uh, microphone inside everybody's living room. Basically everything that Amazon Alexa is today, right? They were thinking about. So as usual, Microsoft's always ahead of the game, I think. They come up with great ideas. And then the hard part is something always sort of goes wrong. And in that case, it was the price point with the PlayStation. So because price point is important, they need to cut the price by, let's say, $50 or $100. And the easiest way to do that was to unbundle the Connect 2. But if you unbundle the Connect 2, then you're not going to get any major games for the Connect. And that's basically just what happened. Um, it takes a big effort to have a game-changing technology like that. And um, financially, they weren't able to make it work. I don't think it was a lack of dedication internally. It's just that uh, because the consumer market is always concerned about price, like even marginal price like that, um, it became an issue. Yeah, that, that's fantastic that you mentioned that because I think for people that don't understand, it's so important for new gaming peripherals to be able to adopt that IP that people actually want to play as the chicken or the egg. But if Microsoft yeah. won't even bring like Halo, their their own prize jewel to incorporate Connect, why would another developer invest their IP into Connect? So it's always that chicken or the egg thing, which I think is interesting. Um, you have a background in philosophy, and I think that's really unique because there's a lot of social impact that has to come about and what XR means to humanity. Uh, I'd love to get how your background in philosophy influences your outlook on this technology. Yeah, I think, uh, so my approach to emerging technology is always twofold. On the one hand, I'm really the geek out in front who just loves all of it and is you know, loves the newest, shiny, bright thing every single time. At the same time, the philosophy background, I think, teaches me to be very skeptical and to find the hidden threads of why things are happening in the way they are, right? Um, and sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes that's a bad thing. It just means every time I hear a marketing pitch, I'm appraising it purely as a marketing pitch and not for any content, right? 
And so sometimes I just miss out on important things uh, because I've always got my critics hat on. But on the other hand, I, I think it does allow me to be a little bit more realistic sometimes uh, and sometimes better able to anticipate uh, what's actually going on with the technology at any given point. And um, you have your, uh, a very unique point of view also regarding XR with, with your philosophy background. Um, yeah. Why, why do you think humans haven't adopted, for example, AR when it's so readily available through the phone, through your mobile devices? Um, I have my own theory, like, you know, the mechanics themselves make sense because holding up your phone to take photos and videos, that's what people do. Uh -huh. But I think there's almost like a, why am I doing this factor and not having that like visceral feedback of video or filming something and getting that feedback to share. I think that's also a, a big misstep for the industry. Like Pokemon go should have been more about that. Like uh -huh. that's why people aren't using the AR features. Like, Hey, how am I interacting this world? And why should I share this off? Why it's so cool that other people will think it's cool and think I'm cool. And I think that's what's missing versus like taking a video of something that's really cool or taking a photo of someone that you really care about. But what are your thoughts of why phone, mobile phone AR just hasn't taken off as, as fast as it, it should be when it's so accessible? Um, I think it's just uncomfortable, right? And I'm going to tie two things together, the mobile phones and the headsets. They're, they're both uncomfortable to use. With mobile phones, you've got to keep your arm out like this all the time. And I can do that for about 30 seconds. Um, but after the first time, uh, unless the experience is really, really cool, I don't want to waste my time lifting my arm again, right? So the first thing is all consumer users are lazy people, right? Um, and that's really important. It's not a bad thing. It's just who they are. And same thing with the headsets. There's a certain friction that goes on, um, a certain debt you incur when people have to put something big on their heads. And so the experience has to be really worthwhile for them to keep it on. Or even worse, to put it on for a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time. Um, I, th I think that's mostly it. We just haven't found the right form factor or convenience factor to make it all work. And it's, for me, just as simple as that. It's not that you need more features. You just need the features to be more easily accessible. Yeah. And I think um, because we just haven't had the tool sets, you know, with, you know, everything that Google and Apple is putting out through their SDKs. And I really like what Lightship is doing. I don't think it's gotten to that critical mass of getting the right developers to, just like you said, what are those mechanics that people can do over and over again while holding up your phone without getting gorilla arm or, you know, that term of just getting your, your arms tired. Um, yeah. How do you make that fun? And how do you make that engaging? And, I, and I, for me, it's coming from a gaming background. I was like, wow, what a, what a great challenge to solve. Because if you solve that, wow, the adoption rate, because games always come first and in, of integrating or, adopting new technology. That's, that's where it's at. You know, how do you envision this now future with AR uh, specifically and spatial computing? What do you think it's also going to take to where it's adopted for everyday life? Yeah, I, I really like the way you described that. Um, it reminds me of what you said earlier about the connect always being a chicken and egg story, right? Where on the one hand, you need more games and the games have to be better to make people want to incur this debt of dealing with devices. Um, but on the other hand, if you could just make the devices easier, then we could live with the quality of games we have now, right? And somewhere that has to happen, either the games get better or the devices become easier to use. And that's really the game that we're playing right now. Yeah, um, totally. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think that balancing act is is always tricky when when new technology emerges. Um, you also have a lot of background with with healthcare and education. How do you see XR impacting specific sectors that you think will take off first or be more valuable? What, what, what's James's thoughts on that? On healthcare and education, okay. Well, so different sectors as as a total. Like I, I'm just uh -huh. focusing on those, but. Uh -huh. What do you think will will actually take off based on these different sectors with the technology at hand? Yeah, it. So there's this game that different uh, hardware manufacturers play, right? Which is pick an industry or uh, pick a sector. And the big thing that happened with the Hololens originally, if you remember the original games experiences, they were clearly trying to hit the consumer market, and instead they decided, oh. Uh, we can't be gaming. We have to be enterprise because gaming doesn't have enough money. Enterprise does. Originally, they wanted to be games, but then realizing it couldn't be a gaming device because there's not enough an audience there with enough money. So they went a different direction. Again, enterprise. And then we see Apple Vision Pro and the Quest really finally targeting the consumer market, right? And not for games, but for casual apps, really, maybe even um, retail apps. Um, I've already lost the question. I'm so sorry, but yeah, yeah, no, no my, worries. My first thing there are these. You have to choose where you're gonna go into, and what we've seen over the last couple of years is, uh, we always assume it's going to be gaming, but it's not gaming. We thought that enterprise was going to solve it, but enterprise doesn't solve it. Um, there just aren't uh, enough killer apps that solve a core problem for the enterprise to make it necessarily worthwhile, even though the enterprise does have the money to support an emerging AR market. Um, so yeah, so now everybody's hitting the consumers. And I think that's a good thing because it means they've decided the first thing you do is you make the device powerful enough that um, the experiences are comfortable and you can overcome that initial barrier and pain of having to put a device on your head. Uh, once you have that, then you can start inviting the developers in, right? Because you verified that it's a good device to use. Um, and there's money there. It's not going to disappear overnight, say, the way the Kinect did or the HoloLens did or something like that. And so there's a longer-term strategy that you can uh, hitch your wagon to. What do you think the ideal strategy, I mean, none of us have a crystal ball because, you know, we would all be billionaires. But what do you think strategy-wise makes sense? to focus on as an industry to get that mainstream adoption. Right. You're talking about education and, um, healthcare, and healthcare. Or, or any verticals, you know, pertaining to that. Yeah, I think that there's always two ways of doing it. Uh, we saw with AI, the thing that makes AI hit, even though it's done a lot of cool stuff in the background is just to create the sense of wonder, right? Which is what Midjourney and, um, ChatGPT4 is doing. It's changing the way we think about ourselves and everything just seems like magic. Um, that's one way. And we're basically falling into the, the killer app story, right? Boy, what we really need is a killer app to make this new technology sector take off. So I would say, so that that's one thing. Um, but the other side about what killer app do people need? Uh, I don't know. I'm going to take the easy out. Uh, and just say the magic of AI combined with XR is kind of what we need. We just got to find the right synergy between the two. Um, ideally, it's if you go out and we suddenly find that AR, you know, prevents you from getting into accidents or saves you 
uh, $2,000 a year or something simple like that. Um, or simply uh, improves your quality of life by helping you maintain your mood. Simple things like that, because one thing we know is if we have lightweight devices that you carry around all the time, they can start monitoring you. Um, Apple has been going after that for a long time, right? Finding all these new ways of tracking your health and so on. And it's really cool. I don't know if it's actually hit yet, but maybe more of that combined with AI is the way of getting to a killer app. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I've been saying this for years, <laughs> you know, like uh, XR is really the uh, interface for AI. And uh -huh. once AI becomes more ingrained in our lives, I spent a lot of time at Samsung working on Bigsby. It was the, it was the new version of Bigsby. We had, we had acquired um, Adam Chire's company. Uh, he created Siri uh, to actually do the same thing for Samsung. But it never took off just because, you know, it, it wasn't what Gen AI offers today, right? Yeah. Which is yeah. which is that back and forth in value. Like, wow, I can input just a small amount of text and get back so much tremendous value of what I wasn't expecting. And I think for me personally, it, it really shined a light that, oh, with AI, it was different from what everyone assumed, which everyone thought that enterprise and education would be there first, not taking over creativity, right? right? And also the consumer market just adopted it, right? It was just kind of like a wildfire. And, and it's amazing to me how the world is going to change when the accessibility of capturing 3D-esque content, whether through Gaussian splats and seeing 2D images kind of look 3D, uh, but then having the interface of AI telling you why this is cool or giving that overlay of what this really means uh, in terms of efficiency or creativity. And to your point, hey, this AI can even make you thousands of dollars a month because you're using this tool now. So I think yeah. those are the things that are the, the problems that I think are going to be big solutions and they're going to really change the world kind of stuff. Do you agree with that? Uh, partially. I can we do some some sort of a meta-analysis of the whole thing? I think Let's do one it. of the reasons the mid-journey and all the creative AI has taken off is because we've hit a point in our culture where we're a content-producing culture, right? We've told everybody, we're teaching kids, don't worry about a permanent job. What you need to be is a content creator. Just figure that out. And so anything that helps you produce, you know, uh, we don't even do websites anymore, right? But better websites, or more importantly, get videos out quicker, get um, any sort of content out there, your TikTok videos, your podcasts, whatever. If you can get it out faster, then that's something that people really want. And that's what the latest generation of AI does. Mm. It just creates content for you, right? Because anybody who's trying to chase money there realizes, man, content is really hard. Uh, you might be able to find a shtick, but most people don't. And this allows you to generate content more quickly. If you're clever, you can go through it and figure out what's going to work and what's not. Um, and suddenly you become a better content producer. So that's part of it. And then the, the big question I think is what happens when we have a glut of content where creating content isn't hard anymore, which is what AI is going to provide for us, right? What comes after that? What do you think is going to come after that? Do you think there's a big possibility? I was asking for you, I have yeah. no idea yeah. if I knew. <laughs> If we knew we'd be billionaires now, that's right? right. That's right. Well, I have some theories. Like I, okay. I really like what BCI, you know, that, that technology is still very early. Right. 
and brain interfaces like you, you know it depends on which lens <laughs> so you're looking at because we need to be better consumers of content and vci will let us do that well you know it's it can be dystopian but at the same time it's an interface where you can actually get that information in real time right yeah. I, I i believe in technology it really democratizes things like you know being a korean american you know when i was born korea just got out of third world status and it was really the due to technology that Korea is now who they, you know, the country that they are today. And with, with AI specifically, it democratizes a lot of things. For me, it's like, wow, um, you, I haven't found a way to articulate this really well, but it helps me democratize, you know, being like royalty, like just on my command, I want you to come up with five different solutions of, of this hypothesis. And right. if I don't like it, I'm going to tell you to go back and do it again. Like, you would have to be like really well off or at least, you know, have enough of a workforce to be able to demand that stuff to get yeah. it done. It's the yeah. same thing with art creation. Now, I think with Gen AI, with MidJourney or, or ChatGPT, I think these are also tools for people to become creators. Like it, it levels the playing field. And, you know, I have a theory that Kai-Fu Lee, who created, uh, who wrote the book, um, the superpowers of AI and the new world order sounds like a very scary title, but at the same time, he brought Google into China and he's, he's a, he's a big venture capitalist in China, but his premise is something I really agree towards, which is, Hey, in the future, AI is really going to eat all jobs. So humans are going to rely on things of what they do best, teaching each other, helping each other. And I really think that is with content sharing. And I think these tools help with that. And again, democratize the playing field. So people are able to do so. Uh-huh. Democratizing. Yeah, I think it's all true, but then it, it also falls into, there's this whole trend since the, probably the seventies where it really intensified, where there's always this notion that technology and culture is moving faster and faster so that we can't catch up. Right. And I, I feel like that's been happening since about 2012, 2013 where the speed of technology has allowed communities online to form together and we develop whole new cultures, right? Subcultures and new ways of thinking and new ways of talking, which in turn lead to both the positive and negative side effects of social change, starting with um, Black Lives Matter, which is a great thing, but then in its wake, lots of other social changes where I think for anybody who's not merely on Tumblr or 4chan or things like that, is totally perplexing. We don't know how to deal with it because we can't think fast enough to try to catch up with those cultures, right? So for me, that's another kind of content too, where you're creating subcultures, which are extremely sophisticated and extremely big in their own right. Um, and that's another kind of content that people consume uh, in the sense that they can join online communities uh, of fandoms and things like that. Um, it's becoming more prevalent, but I don't understand it. And at a certain point, it gets becomes an end itself, right? Where people are getting all their social relationships, that sort of sense of democracy and fellowship from things that are kind of hard to understand from the outside. So from the philosophical perspective, right? All philosophy is, okay, the secret of all philosophy, as far as I know it, is uh, first, Ethics is first. Ethics is metaphysics. is one of the great breakthroughs. But second, um, in 2000 years, we've made almost no advancement in it at all. The same problems that Plato 
Socrates faced are similar to the ethical problems we face today. We're not getting any smarter there. And so what I wonder about is what's happening in all these fandoms. Uh, how do the ethics, there are ethics everywhere, but how does it get shaped in those sorts of communities? And over time, when those particular communities become bigger and bigger, they splash over into general culture, right? And I'm wondering how it affects our general culture too, because the speed of technology sort of overwrites the sense that we have 2000 years of tradition that we can fall back on um, to teach us about how to get along together. Um, so one problem is I'm totally, you know, the old man out on the lawn yelling at the clouds in this case, I can't help it. I don't know what to do about it, except I, I really feel that, you know, I'm somewhat validated in that. So I think everything you're saying is right. Content is this great thing that's going on. Technology is moving faster and that's really great. Um, we are democratizing, but also democracy is taking really strange forms and new forms that would not be familiar to people from 50 years ago, let's say. Oh yeah. I mean, I think we're different human beings than we were 50 years ago, but I think you touched up on a cool couple of cool things. And I, I do want to kind of go deeper into ethics because I think that's super important. And with your background in philosophy, I'd love to get your take. Um, regarding tribalism, I think that's unique because we're in the age where I think the metaverse exists, even though like the, the name itself needs to change. I think just like how cyberspace. That, that did not work out it. at all. Did it? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's got to go away, right? But, <laughs> yeah. you know, people used to describe, I'm old enough to remember, people used to describe the internet as cyberspace, and that never caught on either. It just sounds <laughs> weird. And I think yeah. we'll, we'll go through the same thing with the metaverse. But the ideas and the pr principles, we are, we are living in a digital universe with an avatar if you're a part of Discord or part of <laughs> Slack. And we just don't get that 3D spatial understanding with the Nestor glasses come in, right? But I don't think the, the concept itself, the metaverse, I think it still holds true. But this, this um, sense that we, we become detached from relations with our neighbors or relationships with the physical world, where we yeah. experience it much differently than our grandparents did. That's right. And I'd love to like get your opinion on that, which I feel like look, we're, we're losing the aspect of what it takes to become part of a tribe or a village. You have to pay your dues to actually physically make that connection with someone to say that you should trust me so I belong into your tribe and I can contribute. Now, yeah. the positive is like, oh, we don't even have to worry about all that stuff. That stuff now gets taken away because you can instantly join a, a chat room or in, instantly join a Discord channel and yeah. share your views or on social media and find your tribe there. So I think it democratizes the aspect of like accessibility. So I think that's really cool. But mm -hmm. I think you miss out on the whole like physical interactions of, of paying dues. But I don't know mm -hmm. if it's a good thing or a bad thing. What, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I think everyone needs to pay their dues. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah I, I think that's true. There's, um, okay, so let's say there's, you know, this is the basic truth of Marx, that the world is made up of ideas and also of harsh physical realities, and the ideas are determined by the physical realities. And with digital culture, we're managing to separate the two pretty thoroughly, right? And it's not always good. I'll, I'll give you, this is uh, not directly related, but this is a great story I heard by um, uh, Gopnik, who's a great, he's from the New Yorker, is a culture critic, and he's really 
awesome. And he talked about when he grew up and the way he learned about movies, especially foreign movies and classic movies, is he would turn on his TV. There were three stations and he would watch whatever was on TV, right? And okay, so you don't have choice. But on the other hand, you get what you get. And some of the movies are not that good, but many of them are really awesome. And you're a captive audience. You can't go anywhere because you can't pause the movie. So you have to sit there and watch it. And for him, he goes, there's a certain beauty in that because um, you're forced to consume culture in that way, both the high and the low, right? Because the choice is taken away from you. Um, I think that's a lot like paying your dues. You learn the way things are done in sort of a, a, a low effort way. You can be very passive about it. But in the process, you're, you're getting both good and bad things there. You're, you're getting things like uh, massaging his bosses, uh, going around being total jerks. Uh, and that's not a good thing. But on the other hand, you learn the basics of this is how a company is run. This is how you pay all the employees. Here are the basic rules of respect that everybody's supposed to afford each other. And by the way, don't talk about politics or religion at work, right? Basic <laughs> things like that that people don't learn anymore. And that's the good side of it, where you get this received knowledge, which is probably several hundred years old, about what happens when you have to drive into the city and get into this big building with a hundred other people. Um, and simply by sitting there year after year, you learn the basics of it to the point where once you learn it well, then you're ready to manage other people or you're ready to start breaking the rules in order to make things better, right? But you can't break the rules unless you learn the rules in the first place. And let's say without paying your, that's a whole point of paying your dues that I, you get to learn the basics and you're not expected to do anything else except learn the basics. Yeah, I think that's so important not to be a generationalist, but um, you know, <sighs> being part of Gen X, we didn't have like you would have if you were mad at someone, you would have to tell that to their face. <laughs> right? Yeah, right? Versus today where you could just spout on anything on social media. So that's interesting. You know, going back yeah. to ethics, I'd like to get your point of view of what are the problem areas with ethics around XR? Because it's such a hot button item considering privacy is also a concern and accessibility. Well, what, what are your thoughts on ethics and XR? Ethics and XR. Um, when it comes to ethics, I like to think of, uh, do you know Terry Winograd who has done a lot for software design? Um, and in one of his early books, I think in the 80s, he talks about how he starts talking about how everything in the computer world and interfaces are already a kind of virtual reality, right? Um, because you're led to interact with worldly things in a very specified way. I think that's a kind of analysis I really like, this idea that, oh, we've been in, the, in VR for a long, long time. The form has changed, but the whole notion that you're creating worlds online, which are reinforced by um, intersubjective relationships, yeah? Um, that's really the basis of VR. So it's not like we're going to discover new problems in augmented reality or virtual reality. Uh, it's just going to be a new variation of these things that we've had going around since the seventies, which is, um, the tribalism we've already discussed shortly before, but in ethics, uh, the problem we're seeing in AI where there are hallucinations, right? Where you suddenly realize, oh man, I, I can't totally tell the difference between when I went into this conversation, I knew what reality was. I knew this was something else. And now all those lines are really blurring and I'm not sure which is which anymore, right? Um, especially when I realized that I get all my information off of Wikipedia 
which apparently just changes off so often, or I get it on the news, but I don't know how the news is created. Uh, so there's a sense more and more, at least for me, that the more I depend on the digital world, uh, I live more and more in a constructed world, not of my own making anymore. Um, and so there are hallucinations. And I think that that's the big ethical concern. Uh, what happens when you're living in a hallucination? How much does hallucination have algorithms that constantly reinforce your sense that you're really awesome? When really, sometimes you don't need to be told that you're awesome, really, you need to get that sort of education and you need to pay your dues and so on. Yeah, that's super fascinating. You said a couple of things that really, um, really made me think like, yeah, we've always had the tools to replicate virtual reality, whether even through audio recordings through or through video recordings or can't film recordings. It's, yeah. it's a replica of a virtual reality. That's super cool. And regarding your point on ethics, hallucinations, that's such a big deal, but there needs to be some type of truth police, right? Because in XR, you see this a lot in VR chat. And I've been studying people who like live and breathe literally in VR chat. They, they have these great social connections and they're in there as part of me as much time as they can uh, on a personal level. They, they also are very unique because I'm trying to also figure out who that core audience is because some of them may seem like, because um, I know some of them personally who live and breathe in VR chat, they, they are sociable, but they also try to be sociable in, in a physical sense, but they get to be more of themselves without all of the other baggage of trying to be social in a physical world. And they have none of those chains in VR chat or a VR social world. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a reflection, but do you have any thoughts on that? Um. Being a purely digital person, I think the hard part is you're you're always on stage in that case, right? And so the the thing you don't get to do is figure out that sort of private world that's all your own. So one of the exercises I force myself to do is uh, just sit somewhere for an hour each day without any devices on and just read a book, because that puts my brain in a different state than. I, I, I can feel the difference compared to what it's like to be online and always performing for other people, which I think is what's unique to the online experience. Uh, being able to be in a space where everything I do is just for myself is purely selfish. Sitting down and reading a book, I think is something people need to do every so often. And really the dilemma of being online isn't, you know, that creates lots of narcissists. It's more that it creates this obligation to other people that's totally exhausting. Uh, the sense that I have to be a certain way for these people, they expect me to be this sort of guy at this point in time. Um, and sometimes it's too much, right? And you you constantly are watching people online burn out, break down, uh, freak out and so on, because something that should be trivial, being online, which should have no stakes at all, is actually extremely high stakes. Yeah, that, that's really well said. The idea of having a digital identity, you have a persona, right? Whether or not you're trying to push out content or trying to, you know, be better in this particular network or this social media setting, mm -hmm. uh, it is high stakes. And like you said, you're, you're on stage all the time. What, what do you think needs to happen so ethically we have some of those um, guide, guide rails to help humanity? 
Oh. Uh... Or do you think we need them? Like, how, how do we deal from an ethics standpoint with XR where people, you know, are getting burnt out or they feel like they have to keep providing the algorithm content? Those, ethic, those are big ethical challenges. What do we need to do as society to put guardrails on that? I think it's it's hard. Do you remember uh, the the book and then the movie Ready Player One? Of course. Where we discover that, oh, you know, it's not good to be in VR all the time after all. And the big solution at the end isn't to destroy the servers. It's, oh, we're going to have one day a week where we turn off the machines. And that seems like, well, that's a plausible response, but it's extremely unsatisfying, right? It right. seems like uh, this moderating peon um, that doesn't really achieve anything necessarily taking Wednesdays off from being online. It sounds good. Taking time off from being online seems like some sort of solution, but it's not a long-term solution. It doesn't help us come to terms with both the benefits and the dangers of being constantly inside a virtual culture. Uh, so I'll just take a, a, tar a dark perspective on that and say, it's technology, man. You can't control it. We, we can't guide it at all. And yeah. all we can do is every so often keep reminding ourselves that uh, for all the good things, there are also bad things um, going on too. And as a community, we have to keep reminding ourselves of that and saying it over and over again as almost like, um, you know, a warding prayer so that we don't fall completely into virtuality. Yeah, I, I've been really grappling with the whole idea of ethics, considering that once XR becomes ubiquitous, because it's the next generation of computing. Yeah. Wow, there's a lot of privacy concerns of what the ca cameras are capturing, obviously with audio, and yeah. the hallucinations, right, are, are a big issue as well. Um, and, you know, I've been spending a lot of time with the XR Guild, which is uh, st started by Avi Barzaev. He's, he's uh, one of the mm -hmm. product designers who, you know, designed the first iterations of Apple Vision Pro and the HoloLens and, and uh, even Amazon's uh, uh, Alexa yeah. glasses. So. Um, these are conversations that I have quite often now. Um, but going back to you as an, an AR developer, what are the things that you think are good waypoints for you developing an AR to have these ethical considerations as you're developing? What do you think they should think about? Well, privacy concerns are one thing. Um, but I think that the big thing to... So there's always this trap that... Um, let's say undergraduates in philosophy always have, where you try to teach them ethics, right? And I was a grad student for a while and went through this. And the problem is the students finally achieve the position of, you know, being an ethical person means, uh, you know, doesn't mean actually doing good things or avoiding doing bad things, but, you know, at least you thought about it. And that's the ethical perspective. Mm. Um, I would say that's that's one of the traps that we always fall into in technology too, where we think, oh, if you at least think about it, or oh, if you at least have a board that posits five principles of uh, AI ethics, then you can check that off, right? Because at least you've thought about it. I would say not necessarily prescribing what more we have to do, but you have to do more than that. So I know there's a problem at, uh, let's pick on Google for a while. Google had really uh, good intentions, put together an ethical board, picked top people for it, and then ultimately fired them. And the people who were fired said they were never really listened to in the first place. Um, 
And I tend to believe that because that's how corporations work, right? The, the one thing that we're always, always consistent about is what's important to corporations is uh, controlling their marketing and making money. And bad marketing or saying that something you're doing may not be totally great for humanity um, affects the bottom line. So that story makes sense to me, but I would say, but originally the whole attempt to do ethics at Google and a lot of other companies and coming up with their ethical principles has always been this sort of marketing cover your butt. And it's worthwhile just to accept that part of it. That's something. And then the trick is uh, saying to these companies, that's actually not good enough. You have to give your ethics boards some authority too. Do they have the power to shut down a program if they think it's dangerous, right? And usually the case is no. And of course, that's that's the whole drama that we just saw unfold at OpenAI, right? That's right. Story. Yeah, I mean, and, that, and, that was the play, right? Yeah, so yeah. And what's, what's your the lesson that it? we learned from that? Money always wins, man. That's the problem. <laughs> really? That's really the that's really the takeaway. I, I don't know. Like I I still don't know fact from fiction, right? I'm, I'm yeah. not uh, I'm not very in depth uh, or in, in the mix in any way, but I just found it very interesting that Sam's employees were like backing him and then it was a whole role yeah. of reversal you know switcheroo there um you know since I, it's so topical it, it did not go the way the board thought it would go i think that's right, right. That's they lost right. the audience um but it makes sense too uh the the underlying story was they're about to do some financial things that would make all their employees extremely wealthy mm. and suddenly the board comes in and says we're, we're going to nix that because we have ethical concerns and uh, let's say, let's not say that money always wins, but you have to give money due consideration when you've got money versus ethics. And it's an uncertain amount of very big number of money versus uncertain ethical problems. Um, people will tend to go a certain way unless you make an extremely strong case for yourself. And obviously they didn't make a strong case on what the ethical problems are. And we still don't know uh, what the ethical problems concerns at OpenAI were because anyone who says that is going to affect the bottom line, right? So mm -hmm. they're, everybody's going to stay quiet at this point. Yeah, I think um, people stay quiet because they're also part of a tribe, a, a tribe that's also the tribe. on a rocket ship, you know? Uh, right. Like right? Even, even if, yeah. okay, so let's say you end up on the wrong side of a, a war or something, you turn out to be the baddies. But all your friends are baddies too. You don't want to let them down, right? Right, um, right. Tribe matters. That's right. Um, that was fantastic. I always ask this. I had such a great time, James. I know we're over over a little bit, but um, what are your predictions for the XR industry in the short term and the long term? Yeah, short term is uh, I think the MetaQuest and the Apple Vision Pro are really going to take off next year. And set a line of quality on what people are expecting, which I think the Hollands, uh, people never really knew what level of quality they're trying to hit. Magic Leap didn't necessarily know either or the market that they were going for. So Meta and um, App are going to show, it turns out consumer casual apps are the market that they should go for. Uh, here are the minimum specs for what's going to be usable. And based on that, we'll see incredible growth over the next three years where we'll get multiple devices at the same level as the initial Apple Vision Pro out there. And yeah, and that will unlock once again, the potential of augmented reality for all of us developers who have been waiting for this for a long time. <laughs> the, very but that well might be said. wishful thinking, but yeah. 
Well, I think you, you mentioned that the accessibility factor and with innovation leading the way with like tech giants, you know, figuring out all the hard problems, of course, they're going to be copycats, but those copycats are going to be a lot less expensive, again, making it more accessible. So I think it's just good for the industry. It's just, we've been saying this for years. I, I, I really right. hope that next year is the, is the, the, the turning point. Okay. And can't put the cherry on top there. Yeah. Save three years, we have multiple devices. And then in some obscure garage somewhere, some Apple uh, developer who's 17 years old finally comes up with that killer app and it will hit the store and we'll all look at it and go, boy, we never would have thought of that, but it's just so simple, right? I mean, that's what they say about Beat Saber. Like, why did that take so long? I, I totally agree. Uh, where can people find you, James? Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, so I'm not on Twitter anymore. Uh, I lost my account. But you can find me on Facebook at James Ashley. You can find me on GitHub at James Ashley one And I'll talk to you there if you're interested. Fantastic, James. Oh, okay, you know I got to ask you, what will happen on Twitter there or an X? Oh, uh, let me see. So this was before it turned X. Uh, uh -huh. And I'd read, who is it, Jared? I basically read one of these books on how social media is going to mess up your mind. And mm. instead of reading the whole uh, 12 chapters of the book, I got to chapter three, which says disconnect from Twitter. And I felt motivated and just did that immediately. Then I immediately wow. regretted it, but uh, it was too late. What, 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 can you just reinstate your account or, or is it because of the content that you've already published there? My Twitter uh, I, game is weak. <laughs> no, I, I decided, you know, I'm going to win uh, deleting my Twitter account and I ah. succeeded. I made sure I couldn't go back. Got it. That's awesome. <laughs> cool, yeah. James. I had such a great time. Uh, anything else you'd like to share before we sign out? Uh, I love your show. Thank you for asking me to be on your show. And I'm really glad that people are still out there talking about VR and AR uh, because it's a long game, right? And it's hard to keep doing it, but it's very important to keep doing it. Awesome, James. That means a lot. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you, David.